everyone. We're going to continue in our, our absolutely fantastic series in 1 Corinthians. Some very, very important and uh, uh, powerful, powerful messages that the Apostle Paul wants to bring to the church today from the past. And the entire series is entitled, as you know, A Broken a beautiful kind of brokenness, a beautiful kind of brokenness. And, and this morning, it's a beautiful kind of love because the story that Paul wants to tell in 1 Corinthians 8 is a story of how we demonstrate love in the body of Christ as we live out our personal freedom. So this is a, this is a maturity passage. This is a maturity 101 passage, how to grow in our faith. And how we grow is by demonstrating love in the context of having ultimate freedom in Christ. Freedom is always limited by love. And that is what Paul wants to communicate this morning. Let me tell you a story. We were gone this, um, this uh, last week and had some great refreshing time up in Wyoming with some dear friends. Some friends that we've known a long time that have supported us personally, that have supported the river from a distance. And uh, David and Kim Jennings are some dear friends. They live in, in Alta, Wyoming, and we flew out to spend some time and talk and just sit around their kitchen table for hours and sit outside and read. And it was very, very relaxing, encouraging, a few hikes. And, and they invited their pastor from uh, Jacksonville, Wyoming, over for dinner. And he came over and he told some stories of, of ministering in his community. And one particular sto- story he told stood out. It's a story of of a memorial service that he had to perform for a father of five. A father of five, married, Christian man from Jackson Hole. He was a guide, and he led hunting expeditions in the Jackson Hole Mountain region. His name is Mark Upton. You can read about his story in various places because it's a, a, a story that's spread across the United States regarding an encounter with grizzly bears. He was taking uh, a gentleman out to hunt for elk. And uh, they shot an elk, but they couldn't find it. Went back the next morning, discovered where it was, and began preparing it to uh, put on their horses to take it out, the the mount as well as the meat. Unfortunately, a couple of grizzly were uh, observing that elk and were guarding it that night and saw them and came out of the forest with a full charge. And uh, normally, he would, be guard, he would be armed with a revolver as well as a rifle. This is grizzly season. This is grizzly country. And this is how you have to do it. And uh, uh, unfortunately, he had taken off his firearm. And the client panicked, didn't have his rifle near him. And the story is told that uh, as the grizzlies came in, injured both of them, uh, he was able, the, 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 the hunter was able to reach for the firearm, the Glock 10 millimeter, but unfortunately he ejected the cartridge as he threw the gun to the guide, Mark Upton, and he had no bullets. Mark made a quick decision, I'm telling a very long story in a very short amount of time to get to the point. Mark made a decision, created a lot of noise, and re-diverted the grizzlies to him to allow his client to escape, to get on a horse and call for help. Unfortunately, it was too late for Mark. And I tell that story, Ray tells that story to us, uh, as he consoled the family and the five children 
and performed his service. But what struck me about this story was his bravery and act of love to lead those deadly, deadly grizzlies away from the hunter and toward himself. He acted with sacrificial love to divert danger from another. And I want you to remember this story as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. John chapter 15, verse 13. Jesus himself reminds us that no one has greater love than this than to lay down one's life for another. I mean, it's really important for us to understand that we may never in our lifetime be in a position where we will actually have to lay down our life for somebody else. But there are decisions that we will need to make as followers of Christ, living out our faith in a community of others, where we need to be reminded that we may have to divert danger from someone else, another believer. And here's what Paul says about that. So here we go in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, concerning these things sacrificed to idols, and we're, we're wondering, Paul, what are you talking about? This is a conversation between the church of Corinth and Paul as he's talking to build unity and address various issues. He's talking about things sacrificed to idols, and in that day, that's what was going on. And in particular, it was meat. It was the meat that they ate, whether it was in someone else's home, their own home, or at a festival, or some other place. All the meat, essentially, that you'd find served was at one point sacrificed to a pagan god prior to it being available for sale or service. And so Paul's saying, what do we do with this situation? Now that we're followers of Christ and no longer follow pagan gods, we believe in a one true God, what do we do? And these Corinthian Christians were asking Paul about this, and he goes, now let me tell you about this. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. In other words, we know certain things about whether we should do that or not, but let me tell you what the primary objective of the Christian life is, and that is not to know a lot of things, but to love. That is primary. To live out your faith and mature as a believer, to live within community, is to learn how to love other people, to love God and to love people. And Paul says, we may all have knowledge about this, but really love is critical because knowledge puffs up and love edifies. Therefore, with this in mind, Paul says in verse 4, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, that is the meat that's offered in this culture, what do we do? Do we eat it or not eat it? See, it was a moral decision. We're talking about moral decisions that you make in your life as you live out your faith in Christ. And here's a moral decision. Do you eat or do you not eat it? So Paul says, here's what he says. We know that there's no such thing as an idol. Okay, so Paul backs up and he's saying, let's talk about the idol that the meat was sacrificed to. We know that that doesn't even, we know that idols don't really exist. They're made of wood. They're made of stone. They're made of metal. But they're not real. See, an idol is not real. It's something that has been created to take the place of God. And so Paul agrees with those that know this and say, we really know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. 
For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist, for him, one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things, we know that we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. See, not all people know that there's no such such thing as an idol, and there's really only one God. And so it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, because there's really no such thing as an idol. Does Does it make sense? But not all people have that knowledge. Here's the point. Here's the whole point of the passage. He says... But some being accustomed to the idol until now. In other words, they grew up believing in these idols. They participated in ceremonies where the meat was sacrificed. They lived out this pagan religion, and that was their knowledge. And yet now that they've been converted, converted to Christ, their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, they're thinking back in their past and recognizing, I used to do that, and now... I'm really offended by this meat and it's defiling my faith. Does that make sense? And so even though they're clean and they can eat, they feel a moral conscience not to eat. See, we're going to have to get to some, some current cultural equivalence of today's culture. Like what is the equivalence of meeting eat meat to idols today? We're going to get to that in a second. See, we're ne- food is not, does not condemn us to God, he says. We're neither worse or better for it. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. That's the point. We limit our freedom for others through love. Because someone may be defiled by what you're doing. They may feel the, their conscience being attacked, that you're a stumbling block, as Paul goes on to say. For if someone sees you, you have this knowledge, dining in idols, temples, and that it's not a problem for you, but not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed. Will they be strengthened? No, they won't be strengthened. Paul's asking a rhetorical question. For though through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, and the brother, for those sake, Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, Paul says, the conclusion is, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Do you see that? The big point is that. We live out our Christian faith in this wonderful liberty that Christ provides us. Galatians 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. We live free from obligations of others. We live free from a mindset that God will only love you if you do certain things. We live free from having to make decisions on the basis of what other people tell us to do. We're free to live out our faith in Christ and make decisions and and about how we're going to live our life. And there's freedom in that. And there's grace. That's why we come to faith in Christ and why it makes so much sense for us. There's an enjoyment. And it's not restricting. It's releasing. Yet, there's a major caveat in this passage. And that is, there's some among you that may be actually defiled by the decisions you're making. 
You're free to make the decisions. They're not, they're not, there's, they're amoral. And yet, if you continue in that behavior, you may actually cause someone else to stumble, maybe not yourself. Are you willing to be a Mark Upton and throw yourself in the face of danger against something that would defile somebody else? That's a really strong illustration. But that's what Paul is really saying to us. You're free to make those decisions. So how do we live out that freedom? I mean, you think of Corinth. Corinth was a divided community of people that had this knowledge and could afford the meat in the first place because meat was very expensive. And the poor rarely had the opportunity to eat meat. And really, the only time they did is they got invited to somebody's house or they went to a, a, a temple or, a, uh, or an event or a festival to, to enjoy the meat. And, and, and so you have a certain group of people that could do that and enjoy that and knew that it was not going to defile them because there's really no, no such thing as an idol. But there were others that really felt that it would, it would pull them back and away from God. It would pull them back into an old lifestyle, an old way of believing. Are you willing to limit yourself for the sake of somebody else? That's the cultural context. So how do we live out a free life? How do we live out our freedom, mature in a community by demonstrating one thing, and that is love? Here's the three things. Number one, Paul begins by saying, the first thing you got to do is you got to deal with idolatry in your own life. That all of us have been impacted by what Paul calls idolatry in this passage. See, for some of us, we know there's no such thing as idolatry because there really aren't any idols. It's just a man-made thing, right? And, and Paul says, there's really only one God. We know who the right God is. This creator, there's only one creator God. There's not multiple creators of the same thing. I mean, that would be a little strange, wouldn't it? To have multiple creators of the very same thing. There's one creator. You, you got to decide what, who that is. So once you decide and you discover it's God and it's the triune God with the Holy Spirit and Christ, you know who God is. And Isaiah reminds us in chapter 45 that there is no other God. There isn't any other gods. And yet, Paul, notice this, this is subtle, but Paul says even though there are no idols and there's only one true God, yet we all know that there are many gods and many lords. What is Paul doing? Paul is recognizing the fact that we can make something else powerful and make it into an idol. It's what we do. We can make something into an idol. And this is the first point. You want to live a free life? Live out your freedom without idolatry. Identify the things that you've made into an idol. What is an idol? An idol is anything that you give power and control to. Anything that you worship or value more than your relationship with God. So think in your life, think of the things that you have, the relationships that you have, the attitudes. See, it's a, this is a deeper issue. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, that no one can serve two masters. He'll hate the one and love the other. God and mammon. And mammon can st- st- really stand for just about anything. Anything that you've created, you give power to an idol when you give it more value in your life. That's what an idol is. Anything you love, anything you devote yourself more than God. 
It's what your heart clings to. It's what, what you rely upon that gives you security and significance. And this is a deep a kind of issue that we all have to kind of wrestle with in order to get to the next point. And so that's why Paul starts there. Identify the idols in your life. St. Augustine defines sin as disordered love. Something you ought to love but not love it supremely. That's what idolatry is. Something you can love because God created it. God created, created relationships. He created material things. He created uh, 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 friends, job, your career. All those things are from God. But they aren't to be loved more than him. God gives them purpose. God gives them meaning. See, that's why we always, the filter is our relationship with God. And when you run all things in your life through your relationship with God, we're reminded, as God says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the very first thing he told Israel, the very first thing, the very first thing, here's the first thing, don't have any other gods before me. Why does he begin there? Because he knows that's the determining factor of your heart. And I'm not necessarily referring to something material, some, something that you have or own. I'm talking about something deeper, something much, much deeper. It's, it's something internal. It could be a material possession. It could be money. It could be, as they say, I read an article on idolatry and materialism, and they said one of the struggles in our culture is that with materialism is that what, what's planned, there's this, this, there's this planned obsolescence in materialism. In other words, they put, they implant this obsolescence in the things that we buy so you always need something else. And it's very, it, it lures us. It draws us in. And we need to be careful about that. We need to be mindful of that. Fine. Maybe it's just your time. Maybe you just kind of feel like, my time is my time. The way I live my life is the way I Maybe it's pride. Maybe there's a deep sense of pride. And pride is idolatry. If you're giving it more power and control than God, maybe it's just a self-centeredness or a power. See, these are internal issues. I was at a Bill Gothard concert when I was in high school. Wonderful thing. It helped me. It was a basic youth conflicts or kind of work the conflicts out and find security in Christ and all that. But by the end of the weekend, he got into some moral practical issues. And one of the things he really felt like is just that we become too secular. And one of the things you got to do is you shouldn't be listening to secular music and you need to burn all your records. And I'm thinking, I am not going home and burning my records. That's the last thing I'm going to do. In fact, if you really feel like you got to go home and burn your records, give them to me. I got three record players. I got one in my office. I got one in my house. I love records. I love listening to the old LPs. I mean, you can keep, you can still buy them. So I'm, I, was, I was wrestling with that, thinking, you know, that's an external thing. But I think there's something far deeper going on here. And that is the internal issues in your life. See, these aren't bad things. Uh, but until you are free from idolatry, you will not be able to f- be free to show sacrificial love to others. You'll be clinging to something else. You will not be hearing the voice. Dr. Beale wrote a great book, a fantastic book, a theology in idolatry. He says the book is entitled, We Become What We Worship. Brilliant title. It's exactly his point. 
We become, you become what you worship. Do you ever realize that? Whatever you worship in your life right now, guess what? That's what you're becoming. You are tr being transformed into the thing that you love the most. And if it's not God, be careful. That's his point. Because in Isaiah and all throughout the Old Testament, what he says from a theological perspective, these people become blind. They cannot see and they cannot hear. Blind and they cannot hear. So they can hear nothing and they can see nothing. Their, their vision is gone. Their perspective is completely messed up. And that's what happens when we love something more than God. That's why we need to begin to live out your free life, of a, free, life free of idolatry. The second thing I notice in this passage that Paul now moves to is the main idea. And that is in verse 7 to 11. On the basis of love, Paul says, limit your freedom for the sake of the weaker brother. See, there's another way to live out freedom, and that is you limit it. See, you're free to make all kinds of decisions and to live with what you have, but be careful it doesn't control you. But the second thing he says is limit your freedom for someone else's sake. See, that's where he goes. That's why in 7 he says, we all know that there's really no such thing as this idol that really can't control us, but some actually came from a lifestyle like that. Therefore, be careful. When you eat this food that's sacrificed to an idol, you're, you're actually uh, not harming yourself. You're defiling the conscience of somebody else because they see it as harmful. They feel as though they're being drawn back in, as I said. And so be willing to limit your freedom. We all have the same moral and spiritual constitution. We don't all have the same moral and spiritual constitution. One man's enjoyment is another man's hang-up. See, even though all meat is clean in the context of this passage, Paul says, be careful. There are certain situations you need to avoid, and there are certain things you should limit, even though you're free to. Now, Paul's talking about just simply meat sacrificed to idol in chapter 8, but then he talks about the temple. He talks about going to the temple. And here, he doesn't really come out and say whether you should or shouldn't. In chapter 10, he's going to say, my suggestion, my strong suggestion is to stay away from the temple sacrifices. The temple festivals, they're dangerous. They're very dangerous. Now, meat sacrifice to idols, and it's in your home. He says, enjoy the meat. It's fine. But know that maybe some are being defiled by it, so be careful, and maybe you just don't serve it when they're around or they're with you. Be aware of others. But when you go to the temple, you're walking into a very dangerous place. It's not a good place for Christians. They would, they would have a sacrifice. They would have a pagan cer ceremony. Then they would serve the dinner. Often women and children would be accompanied by their husbands. And then after the meal was served, the ladies and the children would leave and it would become basically a drinking party. And the men would stay and prostitutes would come in and this is what would happen. And, and this is what Paul is referring to when he says porneia, sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about this temple, what happened at these events. Not only was they were calling upon demonic powers... They were also inviting illicit sexual behavior. 
And for a believer, Paul says, not a good idea at all. It's not the way you want to live your life. I mean, God's not going to honor that way of life. But meat sacrificed to idols that is served in a home or some other place, it's fine. Yet some might feel defiled. Therefore, are you willing to sacrifice your own freedom for the sake of somebody else? And so that's the question we have to ask. See, the the idols themselves are dumb and nothing. But they are used by the power of darkness to enslave human minds and hearts, one commentator says. And so we have to ask, what are those things? What are those issues in our life? And and I'm going to throw some ideas out. And again, be reminded we have freedom in Christ, and yet we're mindful of other people in our midst that may have a problem with that. And so we sit down for dinner, and you're about to serve a meal, and you may pull out wine or beer. You're you're serving alcohol. And and you you're just mindful of your community, of the people around, and you just simply ask the question, hey, are we go- were you all good with this or not? Because if someone in the group may have come out of an alcoholic background, struggles with this, continues to struggle with it, sometimes it's no big deal. Hey, not a problem. Fine. Enjoy. I'm just not going to partake. Great. In other cases, they, they, there's still a struggle going on. And by us doing what we feel free in doing, we've actually, in this case, maybe possibly caused someone else to stumble. Now, we didn't mean to, but it may have happened, and and all of a sudden, now they're back into a struggle, and they're going backwards as opposed to forwards in their relationship with God. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? I'd say, hey, are we all good with this? You sit down and watch a movie. Hey, are we all good with this movie? Are we all okay? Is this cool? I mean, that's the right thing to do, according to what Paul's saying. So we begin to ask the question, are we all good with this? Is this, we don't see any moral problem with this, but maybe somebody else does. And Paul is willing to sacrifice his own freedom. It may be an event. I was thinking of going to Burning Man. I've been thinking about going to Burning Man for a lot of years. I've been studying Burning Man for years. When I was at Bible University, I used to teach uh, a Christian thought class. And it was a world religion class, and we were looking at worldviews. And, and I would bring pictures of Burning Man. I was fascinated with what goes on there and, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I kind of know what happens there. And there's, it's interesting, it's fascinating, but there's a lot of things that go on there that I would not participate as a follower of Christ. Not, I wouldn't do that. And so I've kind of struggled with it in terms of whether I should go or not for my own moral sake, but also would that be offensive to my wife? Would that be offensive to my children or to anybody else? I mean, I'm willing to ask that question rather than say, hey, I have the right to do whatever I want. Does that make sense? I mean, that's what Paul's getting at. Ceremonies. How about clothing? We're free to wear whatever we want, but just be mindful of other people. I'm not talking about being a people, but I'm not talking about Every moment of every day, being worried or concerned that you're offending somebody else so you can't do anything. I mean, come on. It, this, is a, this is maturity. This is a maturity 101 class. And we're talking about how to grow up in the faith 
and live out this wonderful freedom, but just be aware that there are some moral decisions that I need to make in light of other people. Maybe wealth. It could be just the way you spend your money. You can do whatever you want. But yet, in some situations, I can think that maybe that might actually be a stumbling block for other people. I was thinking of that, uh, of an illustration, and, and this happened many years ago, and this is where I was in my faith, and so it may not be where you are, but when I was in um, college, I graduated and, and I joined, joined a, a commercial real estate company, and I began my career, and I, at the time, was driving my college and high school car, which was a 1967 Ford Mustang, but I had enhanced it a bit with, uh, with some headers and uh, uh, a few other things, U.S. mags, and some gigantic tires, so it was loud, it sat up high, and it was probably the wrong car for real estate. So I, could, I just could imagine, you know, somebody climbing in my car as a 23-year-old going, are you serious, you're really going to sell me some real estate? So it was time to sell the 67 Mustang, fire engine red, by the way. And uh, so I sold it, literally. I didn't even get out of the car, it was sold. I put a for sale sign on and uh, it, was, it was sold just like that. But anyway, I decided I wanted to get a new car that was a nice car for clients and to drive people around. And I really wanted a Mercedes. I wanted a Mercedes 300 SD, a turbo diesel. Great car, lasts forever. And yet, I felt like where I was going to church and in my faith, I felt like it might be offensive to some people. That may not be where you're at. You're free to do what you want. I'm just giving you an illustration and out of my own life where I was, and I chose not to do that. Whether that's right or, you know, that's not, it's, it's not for judgment. It's just simply the fact that we're willing to ask the question. And so I ended up buying a Toyota Christine. It was a great car. I drove it for 200,000 miles. It was a phenomenal car. I loved that car. It was a wise choice. In fact, I was so excited. I I've told the story before, but I had put 199,998 miles on it, and I remember that day, and the next day I was going to drive to church and have my camera out, and I was going to take a picture of the odometer reading as I turned 200,000 miles on my car, and that night Denise takes my car to Blockbuster and drives it over 200,000 miles, and I get in the car on Sunday morning, and I look down, and it's 200,001, and I went nuts. I had waited so long for this moment. The small details of life. She defiled my faith. But those, you know, parents, dads, think of your lifestyle just for a minute in light of your wife and your children and the things that you're free to do and the way you want to live your life and spend your money and entertain and all the rest of it, but be mindful that you are raising up a godly family, that that's your primary job. And in many cases, you will need to limit a freedom that you have in Christ for the sake of your children to show them a better way, to demonstrate godly behavior, humility, restraint, so that you might lead them into a relationship, so that they may love God more, so that they may see your humility and the kind of life that Ed has lived among his children, humbly. He didn't speak of his own children or his grandchildren or the many others that felt like 
children of Ed and Millie, me being one. Growing up in their home as well as my own home, had a wonderful, loving home, but my spiritual father is right there. In high school, he taught me to read the Bible. He sat and opened the Bible with his own boys and my brother and I, and I learned through his behavior as a godly man. I watched him struggle, and I watched his humility. Wasn't all good. But that's our life. That's the limits that we place on our own life for the sake of other people, and I think that's where we're going. I thought of one little thing that was kind of funny, and I'm going to share it, but it actually has some meaning. You know those little Buddhas? Those, for some reason, are offensive to me. Now, they may not be offensive to you, and you may have them in your garden. Don't feel judged. But if I come over, if I, if I see that thing, I'm going to kick him over. <laughs> I'm going to kick him right in that fat little stomach of his. Because that's offensive to me for some reason. I don't know why. I'm a mature follower of Christ. I know that it's just a dumb little idol. I know that Siddhartha Guatmana, Guat, Guatama was just a man. He was just a man, and he was, he was ascetic, and he was a sage, and he, he taught the way of asceticism and spirituality. But it contradicts the very things that I believe as a follower of Christ. I, and I don't have anything against Buddhists or Eastern religions, and there are people that need to meet the true God, in my opinion. But in, for some reason, when I see that little Buddha, I'm just like, man, it just, it really struggle with that. I don't know why. You know, if I go into a garden and there's one there, or, you know, I was just in Wyoming, this, this drove by this one house that, where, where we were staying, and, and the contractor to build the house is Buddhist, and he left the Buddha. And I, and I thought, man, if I had bought that house, that's the first thing I would have run over with the tractor. But, um, <laughs> you know, so what do you know? you got to understand that it may not be that for you, but it's something. And, and it's good to identify that and to be honest about that. That's what Paul's saying when he's talking about meat sacrifice. And the final thing that I see Paul saying, which is, I think, number three, which is not in your notes, but it should be, in the spirit of freedom, again, freedom being the dominant idea here, in the freedom of, spirit of freedom, draw moral lines in the sand. you got to draw some moral lines. And that's where Paul goes on to say uh, that if food causes my brother to stumble, I'm just going to eliminate eating meat altogether. I mean, that's a moral line that Paul drew. He said, look, it, I know I can eat meat, but because I know that some of my brethren are really offended by that and that could actually cause them morally to, be, to stumble or to be defiled in their faith, I'm just not going to do it. I'm, that is, that to me is courage and maturity. That to me shows and demonstrates a person willing to live the Christian life, not just say they're a Christian. It's drawing a moral line in the sand. Think of the social injustice of what was going on here with these wealthy believers that had meat and access to meat and those that didn't, and and how they used their knowledge and one commentator says basically they were using their knowledge in order to uh, enjoy their personal preferences. But how far are you willing to go, really? 
See, Christ died for all of us, Paul says. And uh, I, I read a little book, and I've read it a couple times since, since then. It's just a fascinating little book called The Stature of Waiting by W.H. Vanstone. And essentially what he's saying is he's looking at the life of Christ, and when Christ suffered for us in that final week, the, the Passion Week, the word is pasco in Greek, pasco. And it means to suffer. It means to suffer or it means to experience the passion. Well, what Vanstone points out is the larger meaning is literally to be handed over, to be in a passive role where you are handed over to something, somebody else and something else might happen to you because you're putting yourself not in a position of control but passivity for the sake of somebody else. And that's what Paul, Jesus did. Jesus allowed himself to be handed over by Judas only one time in Luke, it says betray. The rest of it, it's Judas literally just handed Jesus over and Jesus went into Pasco, a place where he was willing and allowed things to happen to him in order for the sake of love so that he might go to the cross. Think of that model in your own life. That's the moral line that Jesus drew a moral line in the sand in his own life. The most loving thing Jesus could do was Pasco. Allow himself to be handed over to what would happen to him by others for the sake of others. The unfettered freedom of Jesus is suddenly changed for bondage. That's maturity. That's love. That's a freedom within the context of a community. And so I ask you, what would that be for you? One quick example, and we're done. And uh, something that I started when I was just in real estate. I wanted to give out of what God would bring in through my real estate career. And I wanted to decide ahead of time. I don't know where I came up with this idea, but I opened up a checking account, and I called it the giving account. And that's what it was called, the giving account, Bank of San Pedro. And, um, and then what I did is I took out a piece of paper, and I knew that I would live on commission, and I had no idea what the size of the commission would be. It would be based on the deal that I did, that I brokered. And so I wrote down, and I just got crazy, from $0 to $1,000, I give this percent to you, Lord. And then if it goes up from 1,001 all the way up to 2,500, I'm going to give you more, Lord. Here's the next number, the percentage. And I wrote out this whole sheet all the way up to like 100, over $100,000. If God would give me a $100,000 commission, here's how much of it I would give to the Lord. And I wrote it out, put it in a file, and every time I got a commission check, I opened that up, and Denise and I, when we got married, continued this, this plan, and this is how we did it. Uh, I would look and see what the percentage was based upon the commission check, and I would write that check immediately. First thing I did. And so we deposit that check into this giving account, and 10 years after we quit that job and went into full-time ministry, went back to seminary. God kept that count flush with money. I have no idea how. I mean, my, our first job in ministry, we weren't paying. I, I have no idea how we did it. With a mortgage, seminary training, married, no money, come, very little money coming in, God continue to provide. And that is the story of our life. When we draw moral lines in the sand and we decide what we're willing to do and not do, what we're willing to give up 
and what we're willing to hang on to. I can't decide that for you. This is your moment of truth. This is what Paul's decided. I'm just not going to eat meat. Well, what is it for you? The moral lines in the sand that you draw will determine the future of your life and the maturity of your life and faith in Christ. I mean, that's what Paul is saying. And I'm telling you, we experienced that. We've, we've raised our family and put them through college, and God's provided. I mean, he really has. He just continues to provide over and over again. But, but there needs to be moral. And there are other issues. There are issues regarding your sexual uh, uh, morality. I mean, you got to think those through. Your, your traveling habits, when you're alone, when you're away from home. I mean, I know a lot of Christian men that have drawn moral lines in the sand as they're away from their family in order to protect themselves and their family for those kinds of issues. I mean, I could just go on and on, and we just can look at all the different issues in our life. And it's just, that's what God wants to do. So that's what Paul is talking about this morning. What are we willing to do? As we go to, come on up, worship team, as we are willing to go to the communion table, recognize that that's why Jesus came. He came to give his life so we might live out our freedom and grace. And there's forgiveness at the table. There's a new opportunity of new life, new decisions. So, Father, we go to the table now in the name of Jesus, believing that your bread, the bread and the the juice represent your blood and your flesh that were sacrificed for us so that we might have new life and have it together with freedom through love. In Jesus' name, amen.